Milton Erickson once said that patients become patients because they're out of rapport with their own unconscious mind. We'll talk about how to remedy that and make sure we're doing good self-care because as coaches, we need to take care of ourselves on today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. So welcome back to the podcast. Now, I just want to start off by saying this is the third attempt at my recording this darn thing. Um, I've had some technical difficulties or perhaps this platform that I use as StreamYard has been having some difficulties with uh, interfacing with Firefox, but uh, hopefully this has been overcome. I'm now using a different browser, so fingers crossed you'll be able to hear this one. Anyway, so I've probably gotten pretty good at saying what I'm about to say. Maybe it won't take so long. Um, but we're talking about self-care. The idea that Erickson said that we become patients, people become in need of therapy, basically is what he's saying, because they're out of rapport with their own unconscious mind. It's such an interesting concept. You know, because in a way, you can you can figure it out. You can you can appreciate it. Because Freud used to think of the unconscious mind as like this, this you know, seething cesspool of unrequited un desires or something like that. It's just, it's weird. Uh, time of his age, I think, and also the industrial age, that was kind of the metaphor he used for that sort of stuff. But we we have a different understanding now after, after Erickson. And that is that we are, our conscious mind is basically a gift from our other than conscious mind. Erickson used the terms unconscious or subconscious. I get the term other than conscious from Dave Dobson. But the idea is, that everything we do here, say you know, anything at all, um, their conscious mind is aware of a, a sliver of that totality, right? So to, to you to understand language right now, as, as an example, for me to be making these sounds and for you to decipher them as language is an, an astonishing thing that we assume we just, oh yeah, I know what he means. We're just listening to the content. Yeah, I get it. You know, But the process of doing that is amazing. And that's way beyond what our conscious mind can do. So the gift of that understanding is coming from our other than conscious mind. So what's what's the problem then? How do we get out of rapport with our unconscious mind? I think what happens is that a lot of times we have this notion that there are good parts of us and bad parts of us, right? Lana Popovich in her talk uh, a week or so ago, was was talking about, you know, the shadow integration, integrating that part of us that we, we say, oh, that's the bad part. But a lot of times, for a lot of years, the whole unconscious mind was like, oh, you got to be careful of that unconscious, you know, it's it's going to it's gonna get you. <laughs> you know, so so we, we strove to our higher selves. We strove to, our, you know, being better than we are, self-improvement, self-improvement. You have to improve that self. Self's not good enough. You got to improve it. You got to improve ourselves. So, that idea that the conscious mind is good and the unconscious mind is bad creates this dichotomy, this, this splitting off of these two functions. And so I think we do well 
to improve the connection, improve the conversation, improve the uh, the ability to um, have a good relationship with our other than conscious mind. One of the ways I think we do that is through self-hypnosis. Now, just so you know, the idea of self-hypnosis is uh, interesting because we're in trances all the time. And in a way, we're always in a self-hypnosis in a way. We always are because we're talking to ourselves. We believe what we're saying. You know, there's this you know, sort of tra trance going on constantly. So what does it mean to put ourselves into hypnosis? You know, what is self-hypnosis? Well, there's different methods for doing it. But the way that I prefer my my go-to uh, self-hypnosis process is called the Betty Erickson Special. I don't know who named it that. It might have been Richard Bandler. I suspect it may have been. But um, Betty Erickson, Elizabeth Erickson, was Milton's wife. And the story goes something like this. <clears throat> because he was, you know, confined to a wheelchair in the latter part, latter years of his life, they had moved to, um, I think it's Hayward, Arizona, suburb of, uh, of Phoenix. And maybe it's Hayward Street in Phoenix. That's probably right. At any rate, um, they had a sort of... Uh, ranch-style house and a semi-attached guest cottage so he could wheel himself over there or be wheeled over there to, to do work. He was working up to practically the day he died in the semi-attached guest cottage that was his office. And um, sometimes, apparently, uh, people would come in and say, yeah, I'm interested in learning self-hypnosis. And he'd say, ah, yes, self-hypnosis. Betty likes that. And he'd call on the intercom and say, oh, Betty, would you come and teach this young person about self-hypnosis, please? And this was the method that she taught basically built on the idea that the conscious mind is capable of keeping track of approximately five plus or minus two bits of information. I've heard it seven plus or minus two bits of information. I've heard it five. I've, uh, I think it's more like five for most people. At least it's my experience. Some people, it seems like it's about two plus or minus two bits of information. But nevertheless, the idea is that, you know, the conscious mind can keep track of so much and then it's kind of overwhelmed and can't keep track of all that stuff. The other than conscious mind, subconscious, unconscious, is aware of everything. You know, it, see, it gets all this information in, but it decides, you know, for you to focus on certain things. This microphone, which is just out of camera shot, you don't see it, not so discriminatory. You know, they've, they've made it so that this is focusing on this area. But really, if a truck goes by and picks it up, if you ever put a microphone in a, just a general purpose condenser microphone in the room, where there's things happening and you're listening to a conversation and you think your recording will sound good. And later when you listen to the recording, it's like all this ambient noise and, you know, <laughs> you can't hear a thing because the mic picked up everything. Our, our, our unconscious mind gives us the selective attention to focus on those certain things. But anyway, five plus or minus two, pretty much we get overcome. So this when, when the conscious mind gets overloaded, then the unconscious mind kind of takes over and you have a trance. So it's a very lovely way of going into trance. I will say this also, one of the reasons I love it so much is that it is kind of contrary, if you will, to what hypnosis in a way is supposed to be all about. Little short history. Um, the word hypnosis, you probably know this, comes from the James from James Braid, a Scottish physician who named it in the um, nineteenth century, eighteen fifty ish. Um, he was studying the work from the previous century of Franz Anton Mesmer, who um, famously did animal magnetism. That's what he called it. At least uh, subsequently, years after him, they called it 
mesmerism, being mesmerized. But nevertheless, Braid was interested in what he had to do. And so he was studying it and gave it the name hypnosis, thinking that it was a sleep-like state. Hypnosis is the Greek word for sleep. So he named it hypnosis. Now, later on, he uh, decided that wasn't a very good name. He wanted to change the name from hypnosis to monoideism because he felt people weren't sleeping. It was kind of a focused state, maybe more focused than normal. So instead of um, hypnosis, you want to change it to monoideism for a single idea, a single focus of awareness. And we implement a little bit of that. We have eye fixation. We, when we do the Betty Erickson special, you just rest your eyes in one spot and attempt to leave them there without moving them off. You don't have to, you know, hard focus, but just, you know, leave your eyes in resting one spot and then use your peripheral vision to see the whole surrounding area. So you get a little bit of that monoidism, but, but really what you're doing when you're adding, you know, one picture to another picture, to another picture, to another picture, you're starting to overload the system. So you go through three of our five senses, the visual, the auditory, and the kinesthetic. We leave the olfactory and gustatory alone, but visually the things we see, auditory things we hear, kinesthetic things we tactily feel. So it's not emotional, it's tactile, right? So basically what you do is this. You, you sit feet flat on the floor. Always a good idea when you're sitting to have your feet flat on the floor. That way you don't tip over when you start going into trance. And you focus your eyes on one spot slightly above eye level. Helps to tire the eyes, get more likely of them closing, which is what things we do want, I think, in uh, self-hypnosis a lot of times. Not necessary, but could be, could be good. Keep your eyes focused on one spot, and then you say the following phrase over and over again. You fill in the blanks with different endings. So I'm now aware that I see blank. Then you go to the auditory. I'm now aware that I hear blank. And then finally, the kinesthetic. I'm now aware that I feel fill in the blank. So it could be something like this. I could say, I'm now aware that I see the window frame. I'm now aware that I see the microphone. I'm now aware that I see the window. I'm now aware that I see the trees outside. And you go to auditory. I'm now aware that I hear my voice. I'm now aware that I hear a wind chime. I'm now aware that I hear crickets chirping. I'm now aware that I hear my voice. I'm now aware that I feel my hands. I'm now aware that I feel my feet on the floor. I'm now aware that I feel the temperature of the air. I'm now aware that I feel the breeze from the window. So that was four sentence completions in each modality. I'm going to go to three sentence completions in each modality, followed by two, followed by one, and then finally I'll close my eyes if they don't close by themselves already. So three more sentence completions. I'm now aware that I see a post-it note. I'm now aware that I see a lamp. I'm now aware that I see a wall. I'm now aware that I hear the wind chimes. I'm now aware that I hear the wind. I'm now aware that I hear the chair creak. I'm now aware that I feel the lumbar pillow on my back. I'm now aware that I feel the chair beneath me. 
I'm now aware that I feel my hands. Two sentence completions in each modality, and I'm now aware that I see the sky. Now aware that I see the figurine. Now aware that I hear my voice. Now aware that I hear the wind. Now aware that I feel my feet on the floor. Now aware that I feel the ring on my finger. One more. Now aware that I see the desk. Now aware that I hear a car. Now aware that I feel the chair. Now, if you want, you can continue going through those different sentence completions until your eyes close, but you can then also just let them close at any point. And when you do let your eyes close, then take yourself in your mind's eye to a body of water. It could be a lake. My favorite place to imagine going is an Adirondack Lake up in northern New York State, but it could be an ocean. Sometimes go to the beach. Whatever it is for you, go to some place that is kind of a, a tranquil sanctuary for you, a haven, if you will. And what you can do simply is, you know, be there. You can maybe even go through the same kind of sentence completions. I'm now aware that I see the beach. I'm now aware that I see the waves. I'm now aware that I hear the wind. I'm now aware that I hear the seagulls. I'm now aware that I feel the sand. You know, do the same sorts of things for your imaginary place. And then finally, just be. Just be. That's what I do, at least. To me, what this is doing is it's sort of taking the locust of control, if you will, and turning it over to your unconscious, turning it over to the other than conscious mind and just saying, hey, whatever, you know, you got the you got the controls for a while, you know, and it creates this connection, creates this appreciation for that. It also, to me, is kind of an expansive awareness. So unlike traditional monoideism or hypnosis where you're focusing on one thing, here we're expanding outwards and doing more and more aware of everything. So I think it's kind of lovely. I think it's kind of beautiful connecting to the nature, connecting, you know, uh, being one with everything, if you will. It's the way I take it. Some people want to do something a little bit more directive in self-hypnosis, and you can do that. I find it difficult to be giving myself directions within the trance process. So usually what I'll do if I do want to accomplish something with a self-hypnosis is I'll say to myself before I begin, while I'm in trance, I would like to ask my unconscious mind to bring up to the surface all the references and resources necessary to accomplish and do the thing I'm asking for help doing. And then I just trust my unconscious mind to do those things while I you know, go to the beach. So this form of doing self-hypnosis to me is a great way of self-care. It's something I, I used to do religiously, let's just say. I would do it every day, every day. I had a rule that was basically no trance, no breakfast. So even if it was for five minutes, I'd, I'd do this. Even if it was for a few minutes, I'd do it. Um, often I would do it, I would interrupt my jog around Prospect Park in Brooklyn and sit on a park bench and do it outside. Loved doing that, still do. Um, Self-care can take many forms. Of course, a lot of people that I know who do the havening techniques do some self-havening where you do the delta wave producing havening touch on the face of the arms 
and then offer themselves affirmations, set their intention for the day, that sort of thing. Um, it is something, again, that I, I still now do quite regularly. So that's another subject for another day. And I wish that you do find something that you do for yourself, just simply for yourself, to maintain that self-care and take good care of you. You'll proverbial, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put them on your children or whomever that you're traveling with. Good advice. You know, we must take care of ourselves as coaches so that we can be there for everyone else to make the world a better place. So thank you for making the world a better place. Hope to see you again next time. This has been the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure seeing you again. Hope to see you again real soon. Come back next week when we have another gripping and exciting episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. And if you want to, you can find out more about us, each and every one of us, at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Thanks.